It's one thing falling in love with a house, picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Welcome to Podcast One. We hope you'll support our sponsors who bring you these podcasts absolutely free and with limited interruptions. And of course, we appreciate you listening to this show, which will get started in just a second. Since 1983, Eddie Trunk has been the voice for fans of rock, hard rock, and heavy metal. A best-selling author, host of TV's That Metal Show, and seven national radio shows, including Trunk Nation, daily on Sirius XM. Interesting. Eddie offers the world his newsmaking interviews, passionate analysis, honest commentary, and who knows what else. So welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Everybody, it's Eddie Trunk, and it's time for another edition of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. And I'm coming to you from Los Angeles, the time that I am recording this. And if the audio of my voice isn't quite as great as it usually is, that is because I'm on the road and I don't have my usual equipment. But that's just for the open here. Once we get to our interview, which is a great one this week, it will be the usual stellar audio quality of the Eddie Trunk podcast. But I'm doing this in my hotel room in Los Angeles, and I am here for the week where I am doing my uh, radio show, my Sirius XM radio show on volume, which is live Monday through Friday, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time. Replays every night, 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern, and is on demand on the SiriusXM app. If you're hearing this on post day, it's a Thursday. I am recording this on a Tuesday night, and I've already had on the volume show Josh Todd and Stevie D from Buck Cherry, Tom Morello, and also Stone Temple Pilots. So I'm off to a great, great start here with a great week in L.A. that, uh, also is going to include, include some more great guests on the Daily Volume show, and it'll wrap up on Friday with the Dio Cancer Fund fundraising event, which is the reason I'm in L.A. to host that, honored to host all the Dio stuff, and that's happening at Pins in Studio City. If you're hearing this on post day, you happen to be in Southern California, it is open to the public, and all of the money we raise goes to the Dio Cancer Fund. So I'll see you there for what's always a fun event in Studio City at PINS uh, tomorrow, if you're hearing this on post day, Friday. And then I fly home on Saturday and uh, get into another week. And then I'm home for about a week or so doing my radio and all my normal stuff. And then I got a little vacation coming up, which I'm very much looking forward to, that culminates with a trip to Tulsa for a few nights where I will be hosting a show with Warrant 
and Firehouse. That's at the IDL Ballroom on October 22nd. As usual, all my appearances on the homepage of eddytrunk.com, and you can follow on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Eddie Trunk, Twitter where I would be the most active and you get the most up-to-the-second information. So uh, I mentioned a bunch of the daily interviews going on on the volume show, of course, here on this podcast, you get a little sampling of that because I bring you an interview and all the interviews on this podcast originate on my radio show. So you get a little sampling of uh, of what I'm doing on the radio here on the podcast. And this week, exactly that, because I was here in L.A. last about three or four weeks ago. And when I was, I hosted a town hall with the band Stone Temple Pilots, who are celebrating the 25th anniversary of their album Core, their debut blockbuster album. Robert and Dean and Eric were nice enough to sit with me in front of a live audience at the Gibson showroom here in L.A., and we did a, a great interview that you're going to hear shortly, like I said, in front of a live audience. I actually just had the STP guys on again a second time, and and that took place uh a couple days ago here in L.A., and I'll be able to maybe bring you that interview somewhere down the line, too. Although that interview, which was uh, live this past Monday, was a bit chaotic because it was uh, a very, very sad start to this week. And I do want to mention that right now before we get into our interview for uh, for Stone Temple Pilots and the town hall. But two, two tragic things that have happened. And uh, one, of course, is the death of Tom Petty, which was surrounded by a lot of confusion. People not quite sure if Tom had actually died or not. Very, very, very strange day on Monday. I was on the air in the middle of my radio show with Stone Temple Pilots, getting conflicting information about Tom Petty and if he indeed had died or not. And then, of course, it was later uh, in the night on Monday, Pacific time, where it was revealed that Tom Petty had passed away. Uh, Tom Petty, no matter what kind of music you're into, the guy had such an incredible catalog of so many incredible songs and such a great songwriter and such a great talent and at 66 years old just way 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 too young uh, to have passed away but he indeed has and we've lost another icon in the world of rock with the passing of Tom Petty the other greater tragedy and I only say that because obviously it took the lives of so many more people whose lives were and are just as important as uh, any celebrities that is the unbelievably tragic actions that took place in Las Vegas with a deranged gunman shooting into a festival of country music from a window at the Mandalay Bay. Uh, this is just absolutely beyond comprehension. It is incredible it really is i like so many others have been absolutely devastated by this event if you are listening to this you're no doubt a music fan you can imagine the horror that this must have been to be in a festival where so many of us are on such a regular basis going to music events and basically having bullets rain down on you 
it's it's really really uh as horrific as uh an act as you could imagine and it really resonated for me because anybody that's listened to me knows that i love las vegas it is one of my favorite cities if not my favorite city in america it is a city i have so many friends that live there now there is a great music scene there there's a ton of music festivals there. As a matter of fact, I was supposed to be in Las Vegas a couple weeks ago doing an episode of this new TV show that I have coming from Vegas. And that did not happen. I had friends that were working and at the country concert where this heinous act took place. And they just described the scene as the nightmare you would imagine it would be uh, I have a good friend that uh, books the the bands and works in the entertainment division of MGM which owns Mandalay Bay I've stayed at Mandalay Bay countless times and been to Vegas countless times and it is just uh, something that no matter if you're a Vegas person or you know Vegas or not or just a music fan another thing that just hits incredibly close to home about the world we are in today. I can tell you that I am someone who has honestly said for a long time that as much as I love Las Vegas, I also have a and have had a tremendous concern for that city and how absolutely wide open it is. And that really is the problem because Vegas is completely wide open and freewheeling and anything goes sort of city. One of the things that makes it so great. However, there's a flip side to that. And that flip side is that that is in today's day and age, very dangerous. And we saw firsthand that being the case, you know, I've stayed, as I said, at Mandalay Bay and many other hotels in Las Vegas so many times. They don't even check for key swipes going up to elevators in most of the hotels. It is totally, totally wide open. And that is the nature of the whole city, if you think about it. You can go into any casino floor, tons of people walking the street. One of the things that makes the city so great, if you love it. But that is also something that can easily be taken advantage of by sick, deranged people. And that is what we saw happen on this past Sunday in Vegas. So thankfully, most of uh, all of my friends that I know that live there or were working there and uh, had some that were working directly at that event are all okay. But at the time that I'm doing this, nearly 60 people have died and over 500 were injured. And I just wanted to take a second to acknowledge that and offer my condolences to those who lost loved ones or, you know, in a speedy recovery to the people who have been injured and are still battling. And I don't know what the solution here is, folks. I'm not going to sit here and tell you I'm that smart to know. I do know that I think we are going to see some changes in Vegas as far as security. And I do know there are certainly improvements that can be made from what I've seen in that town. You, you would hate to have to see the 
open nature of that city be curtailed. Again, one of the things that I think makes it so great. But there are definitely some things that are going to have to be done because as crazy as it sounds, this could have been worse and it gives other people ideas and you need to be as proactive as possible in today's world. I don't know how anybody, though, could have prevented or accounted for something like this happening. Yeah, I've I've heard a lot of people in the news saying, well, how did he get the weapons in his room and all that? If you've ever been to Vegas, you people are walking through casinos with coolers and duffel bags. No, there's no stop gaps. And that is how the city is and, and, and the nature of it. And again, that may need to change to some degree in light of this tragedy. We'll see. But uh, this is, again, resonated with so many, myself included. And I'm sure there's going to be more news to come out on this as time progresses and maybe ever, you know, since I've recorded this open to this podcast. But, uh, you know, we we will uh, continue to see what goes on. And you, you've got to live your life and you shouldn't be afraid to go to shows and you should be able to do what you need to do. And, you know, I get all that. But, uh this this is you know crazy stuff when you start to think about it, especially with the incredible volume of music festivals that happen now in America. I've got a new TV show that's going to be announced any day officially about me covering music festivals. So something to be cognizant of, and and uh, again, I can't express my condolences enough to the people impacted by what has happened in Las Vegas. So be safe, everybody, and, and enjoy the shows, and uh, we'll see what sort of ripple effect this has. Sometimes these things happen, and you hear about all these changes that are going to happen, and nothing happens. I hope that's not the case this time, but we'll see. All right, so uh, one other reminder here is that I've got uh, an Amazon store that I want to tell you guys about. And that is part of my podcast. And you go to amazon.com slash shop slash Eddie Trunk. And you'll see some handpicked items that I suggest that you might be interested in. Take a look at those items. If you are inclined to purchase them, great. If you don't purchase them, that's fine too. They're just some things that you may be interested in being a listener of this podcast. And do all your shopping then the rest of the way from that page on Amazon. So I just ask that you start your shopping whenever you go to Amazon, amazon.com slash shop slash Eddie Trunk. I just got these amazing new headphones from Bose, QC35 wireless headphones. I put those in there in the store, as well as some music and things that you may want to check out. I'll also make sure I get the uh, Stone Temple Pilots 25th anniversary of Core in there if it's not already. So again, these things are stuff that I hand select to be on the front page of my store Always start your shopping there and then go on to the rest of Amazon from amazon.com slash shop slash Eddie Trunk. Appreciate you doing that. So today we uh, have the Stone Temple Pilots Town Hall, again, recorded in L.A. about three weeks ago in front of a live audience at the Gibson Showroom. I've had a great, great time with Robert, Dean, and Eric with some great interviews, a few of them recently. And they've got, you know, they've definitely got, uh, though they've already said they've got a singer, 
and they've got some new music, and I think very, very soon we're going to be hearing about a relaunch of Stone Temple Pilots, which is really such a great rock band, man. When you think about the incredible songs this band has made, so much attention is on the debut album Core recently because of the reissue and it being 25 years since it came out. But the, this was certainly not a one-album thing because Stone Temple Pilots went on to have a a tremendous career with even more great songs that weren't on their debut. But this interview focuses on the first album because, again, it was about the 25th anniversary of the debut. So get ready for that. Again, the interview is courtesy of my radio show, Trunk Nation, on Sirius XM 106 volume live, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time, replay 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern, and on demand on the Sirius XM app. I ask you to uh, check out the show, and if you are not a subscriber to SiriusXM, please join us. I do not think you will be disappointed. You're only getting a tiny, tiny bit of what I do on a daily basis on uh, on volume here on this show. So check it out when you get a chance, and uh, if you are already a listener, thank you. And get ready for a little STP. Eric, Dean, and Robert, this week, coming up next on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. The Eddie Trunk Podcast. Well, believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, it is uh, a quarter of football season already over, and it's been a brutal year for my New York football giants who, at the time I'm doing this, are winless. But they are going into this weekend playing another team without a win, the Chargers. And if you have any interest in betting, and so many people do bet on football, you should know that where you're betting is just as important as who you're betting on. So you should check out mybookie.ag. That's mybookie.ag. Mybookie has been in business for years, and their rep is rock solid. They do 100% cash bonuses. So off the bat, you're making money for doing nothing, and they have the fastest payouts. Seriously, just two business days. So if you think you know who's going to win, lay down some cash, and maybe you win big. So check it out. MyBookie.ag. You win, they pay. They have in-game live betting, the most rewarding player perks in the business, and an all-new mobile site that makes wagering on the go a breeze. Join now, and MyBookie will match your deposit with up to 100% bonus. Use promo code EDDIE, E-D-D-I-E, to activate this offer. Visit MyBookie.ag today. You play, you win, you get paid. MyBookie.ag. Use promo code Eddie, E-D-D-I-E, to activate this special offer. There are 120,000 unsolved murder cases in America. It was the next day that I found out from my parents when it happened, that my sister was killed. Each one is called a cold case. Sometimes you have to look really closely to find the evidence. Damn, I, I killed her. Damn it, I killed her. Cold Case Files, the podcast. Garcia is walking into the home of a real monster. I was nervous. I realized what kind of person I was dealing with. It's a goosebump moment. Download new episodes every Tuesday on the Podcast One app or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast.
All right, let's welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast, Stone Temple Pilots, Robert and Dean DeLeo, and also drummer Eric Kretz. This interview took place a few weeks ago in Los Angeles in front of a live audience for a Sirius XM town hall, and it premiered a couple of weeks ago on my show on volume, which is called Trunk Nation, and now you get a chance to hear it on the, the Eddie Trunk Podcast, so let's do it for you right now. Stone Temple Pilots celebrating the 25th anniversary of their debut album, Core. Enjoy. So let's get into it right now with the guys. We have with us the uh, three members of Stone Temple Pilots, of course, the surviving members of the band. We'd like to welcome them to the stage right now. Drummer Eric Kretz, guitarist Dean DeLeo, and bassist Robert DeLeo. Grab a seat, grab a microphone. So, um, man, I'll tell you, I was thinking about this, and when they called me to do this and they said 25 years, Core still feels like a newish record to me. Where the hell did 25 years go, man? No idea. Does it feel that long ago for you? I mean, you guys made the record. Does it feel that long ago for you? It feels like it's just yesterday, and then it feels like it's another world ago. Because for us as fans, we listen to this record it's it's part of the fabric of what has become classic rock radio now even it's it, it's such a part of what we listen to on a regular basis and hear but you guys starting with you Eric as as guys that made the record do you still listen to it is it something that you feel is you're still so connected with or does it seem like we've, forever uh, we've ago? listened to it a lot in the last couple of months <laughs> so as far as putting it on and listen to it and really uh, uh fine listening to it yeah um but the last couple of years, luckily, we'd hear it on the radio all the time, uh, at least some of the singles. But with the change of music now, so I'm not really driving around with CDs and, and playing plush, you know, cranking it, looking at, waving at people as I'm driving by. So I haven't been doing that the last few years. <laughs> you said you've been listening to it a lot in the last couple of months. Is that in preparation of this for the reissue? Yeah, which is really exciting because there's so much, especially like the demo stuff that we did on there and then the remastering. And, uh, and other stuff in there. So we right. definitely got into it a lot. Well, we'll talk about all that for sure. But for you, Dean, how do you look back on the record after 25 years? How does it feel to you? Brings back some really, really lovely memories, man. Just some great memories when the four of us, you know, the late, great Scott was, was in a room and we were all together just uh, with this one incredible vision and uh, this kind of zest for just life and what we we're about to embark upon, you know? And, um, you know, man, when you're kind of sharing something as intimate as music like that, you know, you all kind of have to be getting one another off that's in the room. That, that includes Brendan, too. And, you know, if we're not doing that, then how is that going to translate to you guys? You know, nobody's going to really. So we were really getting one another off. Well, before we get more into core and the making of the record, I want to go back to before that. Because from my vantage point, you know, being in radio pretty much my whole life, when sex type thing came out and core came out, to me, it seemed to kind of come out of nowhere. I remember it very vividly. It was just like, who are these guys? Like I had not, being an East Coast guy, I had not heard of, of any sort of rumblings of a band called Stone Temple Pilots coming. It just seemed to hit. But the story goes back way before that. And speaking of East Coast guys, 
you know, Robert, it actually, you and Dean originally fellow Jersey guys, yeah. and you were so born and raised. <laughs> so, so tell your story a little bit about your first beginnings in music and, and how you guys connected as brothers and musically. I, I was just trying to copy him. I mean, really. Yeah, can you tell us when you guys first met? <laughs> we we uh, know the same mother. Dean was in a band that was on the Jersey Shore. Uh, they were playing out a lot, and uh, his singer did not want to continue by playing covers. If you're on the East Coast on the Jersey Shore, you're playing covers, so you're you're meaning other people's music. That's what you do. So I joined. Uh, I think you would probably tell the story better, right? Since I'm, I'm, I'm Oh, yeah, well, we kind of ventured out. Um, we were a trio because we left this one cat behind that refused to uh, do anything but his original music. So we um, wanted to get out and play and, um, you know, just get paid in beer or whatever, you know. And yeah. we learned a bunch of stuff. And it was those days where you did three or four sets a night. And as the last call lights were going on, you got to play a few originals. So we uh, kind of compiled. I was, I was 16 at the time I was playing. Never playing. touched a bass either. Never touched a bass. He was kind of nicking my guitar as I was out fishing or something. And uh, so we handed Robert a set list of about 20 songs ranging from King Crimson to Rush to Zeppelin to The Who. And, you know, for a bass player, there was some pretty involved material there. Ant Whistle, Squire. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of how we started yeah. Playing some music together. Yeah. So we, we did the, the round of the Jersey Shore, playing bars and clubs. And I graduated high school in 1984. I moved out to California. And uh, that's probably why you didn't hear anything about us. We were out, out here so busy trying to, trying to make it uh, happen out here. You know, you, you get involved in music and it's, you know, you have support or you don't have support. And, you know... We had no one else musical in our family, Dean and I, so it was a lot of get a real job, gain some weight, cut your hair. You know, it was a lot of it was a lot of that, and uh, kind of lying about what we were really doing. But we were basically the three of us and Scott were crawling around the city trying to make things work. You know, as 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 you do, as 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 thousands of other people come here to do. You know, this guy was on the east coast doing the same thing except he was playing with cats that really could play like Wiedermeyer and those Wiedermeyer, guys. yeah so i was northern california up there playing the same stuff the rush let me the not, rush the rush the play, rush playing lots of rush and zeppelin of course but we could never find a singer so we just kept doing parties uh instrumental kind of prog mostly rock uh but Wiedermeyer was... Inc- yeah, we that guy's an incredible John guitar Wiedermeyer, player. John he's, Wiedermeyer, he's out in Vegas right now. He's, he's tearing it up in the blue circuit, so he's, uh, he's doing great. But uh, so bad yourself there, Mr. Cross. Yeah, it was, uh, it was great. So when I met these guys... they grew Where up, do you meet, Eric? Where did you guys first meet? Uh, down in Long Beach, I met Robert. He, they, I actually looked into Recycler Ad for Wanted for a Drummer. That was, a, that was a really cool newspaper, The Recycler. <laughs> I mean, it's that thing you never look into it. And the one time you do, like, oh. I found some cool stuff in The Recycler. Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so when I, when I called him in the so ad, we talked for, I don't know, three hours. Just everything from Steely Dan to Zeppelin to James Brown and on and on. We just, we just really I, was li- I was living in, a, in an apartment in Long Beach, and I remember looking down, and I hear this <laughs> pull up, and he had this cool old El Camino like yeah, it was a 70 SS yeah it was pretty and I was like oh right. 
There's one. There's one check for him. You know, so, so the DeLeo brothers come out from the Jersey Shore. Eric is here doing his Northern, thing. Northern California. Northern came California, down, right? Yeah, came down and then where does where does Wyland come into the mix? Because there's conflicting stories about uh, out there about how Wyland actually connected initially with you guys and what the catalyst was for that. Yeah. So, so Robert, if you want to take that and clear that up, yeah, Scott, Scott. Um, was was playing in a band with some mutual friends that I knew. And uh, I would see him and his band playing in in clubs in Orange County. And uh, while I was living in Long Beach, there was a club called Fender's Ballroom. It wasn't even a club. It was like a garage. And there was a lot of music that I wasn't really familiar with from growing up on the East Coast. So going to that place, we eventually met. And um, he asked me to come up and play with his band. It came to the point where... I had a recording studio, a little recording, reel-to-reel recording studio in my apartment in Long Beach. And Scott uh, asked if I would record his band. He was, they were kind of breaking up. The bass player left. He, I think they had a whole plan where they, you know, they, they wanted me to record some new songs for him. And then it was, do you think you can play on this? And then it was, do you want to join? And um, I was a little reluctant at first. It wasn't musically where I wanted to be i was kind of rediscovering all my led zeppelin and you know t-rex and stuff at the time um the 80s were those who remember the 80s were pretty pretty fun weren't they i mean you look back i mean i was i had a watch con- 80s they don't come to us with their problems man. i know i know <laughs> i was i was i had a i had a great concept actually that we do trading cards and everybody gets their best 80s pictures <laughs> and then you trade with you, you know what i mean we got to get that going I'll work on that right after this interview. Right away. <laughs> That's what I want to see. Because, yeah, yeah. man, I look back oh, at some yeah. of those pictures. I'm like, woo, man, what was I thinking? Were you ever rocking the – I've always – you know, you're always the, the, the neat, short-haired guy. Were you ever rocking the mullets or anything like that? I, had a, I had a really, really good mullet. With you did? blonde in the front. It was like a Duran Duran type mullet. Yeah, That's the first whole... trading card, everybody. Yeah. Man. Robert D'Elia. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of how we, we started. We eventually uh, put an ad in the recycler and, and for drummer, and uh, Eric uh, came over, and that was kind of the beginning of, of uh, what was at the time called Swing. The band was called Swing, and we were, we were just having fun. We just, we just wanted to have fun. We were very into... We shared this passion for uh, a lot of R&B, which is, to me, as a bass player, the background of trying to fit in that R&B and the rock and roll. Scott wasn't really too familiar with a lot of rock. He, he didn't really listen to Led Zeppelin. He wasn't really... He was coming from a different area. And I think, really, that's what made this all interesting, is all these different uh, ingredients that went into the band. Because I had to kind of teach scott a lot about and we all did taught he him taught about, us a lot about yeah he did you know, he a did. lot of things that wasn't really on our radar either. right right but the things that were on our radar we really had a i mean when i first met him he was he was truly a singer he could sing he was he was in chorus when he was little and he he could really sing he was a singer so dean where do you come into the picture because at this point you're not in swing right you're not in this no. band so where um, do you what, what were, were you in out here in California? Uh, I was, yeah. I okay. was out here. And um, these guys had gotten, like, what was it, kind of a demo deal? Yeah. It, like, yeah. what was it, Savage Records? Was that what it yeah, was called? Yeah. So they had a demo, and they had some songs. Um, and um, 
sadly, one of Scott's best friends uh, was this guy who was in the band playing guitar, and he was not very proficient at soloing. So they asked if I would play some solos. So I came up and did that, made the pilgrimage into Los Angeles and did that. And, you know, it was pretty evident to Scott how he wanted his guitar player to sound and play. And um, sadly, it was left in Scott's lap to tell his best friend since grammar school that he no longer had a gig. So I, I sadly took a guy's gig. So were you playing prior to that when you were here in California? Or were you doing other things? Did you, were you involved in the music industry? Or? No, I was not. What no. were you doing? <laughs> uh, anybody familiar with Whitecap Construction Supply? I was, yeah, man- said, yeah. I was managing, and there's one, okay. I was managing uh, a white cap. A constru- that's a construction it's basically, supply? It's basically a Home Depot, but for contractors. Okay. And I was San managing, Diego. yeah, managing the San Diego facility. In the back of your mind, was there a thought of continuing to pursue music, or were you kind of checked out of it as a potential career? No, I, to be honest with you, I knew even back in 1984 when there were talks of us moving to California, I knew once Robert and I, we just kind of got out here and set up our lives a little bit just to, you know, for survival, you know. And uh, I knew once Robert and I got our, our minds wrapped around something, it was going to be off. I had this premonition and very, very early on, even in the 70s, that Robert and I were going to be able to but it, it was it was interesting because Scott and Eric and I were up here. I think uh, downtown and Culver City, and and uh, we were going out every night trying to you know promote ourselves and those things you do in L.A. And Dean was down in San Diego, so uh, he had to drive all the way up, and we'd we'd play a, play a gig, and after a while. His uh, managerial skills started suffering at at, uh, at Whitecap, and his his uh, his uh, boss said, "Man, you got to do one or the other. You can't do both of these." So he started kind of fibbing about coming up here and playing. And I was running a million dollar business. We were doing a million dollars a month, right? I had thirty employees, and I was the manager. And the guy's just like, "You either do that, either play in your little band, or manage my store. It's one or the other." And I was so like, he was doing both. He'd one eye it to work, and <laughs> then he'd one eye oh, it up to the, you know, and and and. Uh, but but if you think about it, in in hindsight, that's like okay, you made the no brainer right decision. But but I'm sure Dean at that time, you're thinking, well, wait a minute, I'm got a good gig here, and the odds of a rock band making it are like hitting the lottery. <laughs> yeah, well, I was thirty. I was thirty years old when I inked my contract. Yeah, so that's considered, you know... It's old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, to, to, yeah rock, rock years are like athlete years, you know? You're, right. you're exactly trying to make it, so... so it e- even com- now, man, I'm 56 going on 15. It's that arrested yeah. development, you know? Right. Growing up in the 70s, Well, I do believe man. this keeps us young, for sure. Yes. I am a believer yes. in that. So this, this gels, this starts to come together, and then it morphs into the band... Stone My- Temple Pilots becomes... Mighty Joe Young. Mighty Joe Young. At that point, yeah. And who names the band that? Um, and you know what was fun yesterday? We were hanging out with Brendan. He came in and we hung out with Brendan. and Brendan O'Brien, the producer of CORE, yeah. for people listening that don't know. It was nice because you guys hadn't seen each other in a little while. It was really yeah, this, is my, uh, this is my notebook from back then that has all the numbers and all the uh, contacts. And this has about four pages of names that we were just... Because we, when we got signed, we got signed as Mighty Joe Young. And uh, this... We were done with all the artwork and the record was recorded. And uh, our manager calls us and goes... No, we were, we were in the artist's loft. 
We yeah, were, we were Kevin, approving so the Kevin artwork. Hossman, this kid Kevin Hossman did this. Were, were you were, signed to Atlantic at this point? Oh, were yes. you, you were signed under the name Mighty Joe. Yes, Young. we were. Yeah. Oh, okay. we, yeah. we were in approving all this artwork, and everywhere you see yellow Stone Temple Pilots, it was Mighty Joe Young. And we were like, this is this is incredible. This is this is really cool to seeing our. So it artwork. would have been that cover, yes. that My, same cover, Mighty, Mighty Joe Young, Young. Cover, right yeah. then and there in his loft. The phone rings. The phone rings, and our manager goes, "You got to change the name." We're like, <laughs> so the record was supposed huh? to come out in September, or what was it, August? And it got pushed. Uh, yeah, I think August of '92. And this this was the original. Look, this is my notebook. Wow. So this was all. Uh, contacts and 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 all the names we were trying to come up with for for Stone, which eventually came Stone became Stone Temple Pilots. And that name came because you guys put that name together off of the STP sticker for the absolutely. oil gas company sort yeah, of deal. Absolutely. And and who 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 saw that and said, well, let's turn that into Stone Temple Pilots. I kind of came up with that idea. Scott and I were living together at the time, and I said, we need to we need to. You know, what was the best sticker, man? The best sticker was the STP sticker, right? You wanted that on your banana seat or at the bottom of your skateboard. And everybody would call us STP. It would be great. So, you know, I went to shitty toilet paper to stop teenage pregnancy. To <laughs> <laughs> and we're literally, you know, this, this notebook has words and words and words and pages and pages and pages. And, you know, it just it got pretty silly. You know, it's funny you talk about that sticker because this is the God's honest truth now that you say that. I, I have, when I was like eight, I got this Giants, football Giants garbage pail. And the only thing I put on it, on the back of it, is an STP sticker. <laughs> and, there you go. and I still have the garbage uh, pail and oh, the sticker to this day. Awesome. So yeah. it's yeah, it's crazy how iconic yeah. that was for people was of our age. Sticker, Absolutely. It was, so, it was motor oil. Yeah. But, like, it, but everything that was associated with Richard Petty and... Yeah, well, in the seventies, you know, they were they were the coolest. I mean, there were so many, you know, Evil Knievel and Wide World of Sports and skateboarding and all these things that we grew up with were such a part of our consciousness now. You know? So the material that became the first record was any of it? Was it a hybrid of material that was? Did any of it come over from the earliest swing pre Dean stuff, or was it all freshly written? Now you've got. You know, Wyland in, involved. He's bringing where he's coming from into it. I imagine because because you know STP. It's a pretty. It, it's it's to me. It's a hard rock band. But there's a bunch of other sort of things that go on, which yeah. makes it so cool. So was it that flux of everybody bringing different things to the table? I th- I think it was a complete different sonic environment than from swing. So we kind of wiped the slate clean and just from. Dean and I being brothers and playing together and Eric and his influences and Scott, where he was wanting to go, it was, we just kind of had a different sonic slate to, to, to choose from some of the earliest stuff that we did on, on uh, demos were actually they were recorded in Burbank in my apartment. And, uh, we, we did, um, where the river goes. There were some songs on there that actually made it on core and then that 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 reel to reel in that s- studio that I had in my apartment at Long Beach was brought up to this place we 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 uh, Bill's place did did rehearsal at this place called Bill's place that was uh, on Magnolia and Lancashire, 
Do you remember Mark uh, Fate's Warning, drummer Mark um, Zonder? No, I don't know him personally. Okay, but. so he he ran the place. Okay, and there was this there was this little um, there was this little odd looking guy that was living there. He was he was actually had a mattress on the floor, um, living in one of the rooms. And not, he was, not in our rehearsal room, mind you, but but another room. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was he was living there, and his name's Hootsie. He's actually still our sound guy from back then. So he was living there, and we kind of took him out of there. But um, my point was, I I brought that reel to reel and that recording stuff over to there, and that's what we did pre-production on for for this. And I just uh, went through in my garage and found those tapes. And that's what some of the stuff is, is the original reel-to-reel tapes I saved from, from that pre-production. Yeah, we should make sure that the audience knows that's listening. What Robert is talking about, these demos, these handwritten notes, you will see because that is all part of the 25th anniversary reissue of CORE, which is out on the 29th of September. Is that correct? That's the, the day that CORE originally came out. 25 years later to the day. To the day. And there's various configurations. Hey, we know it's 25 years. We know. Don't say it. <laughs> <laughs> various configurations available 25 years yeah. to the day uh, that you can, get, uh, you can get this. So I, I want to, just in the interest of time, there's so much I could tear into here, but just to mo- progress the story forward, you go into the studio. You mentioned his name a couple times. Brendan is Brendan O'Brien, noted producer. Was he the, the first choice? Was he the guy from the get-go to, to make this record? Because he, I'm sure his uh, influence on this record and you guys as a, as a new, quote-unquote, new band going in to make your first record, that, that was a big decision, I would think. We, we were so excited to be on Atlantic Records because if you look at the, uh, the stature of the, the, the people that were on Atlantic, uh, Ray Charles, Coltrane, Aretha Franklin, uh, you know, Zeppelin, the Stones, yes. Did you say Zeppelin? I said Zeppelin. Yeah, Zeppelin was on Atlantic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Little little band. They're still paying the bills there, aren't they? With that catalog, <laughs> yeah, damn. Exactly. Man. Um, so we were sitting there. We're, we're kids. So, you know, we're all fans of those bands. And Early Yes Records. Yeah, so Eddie Offord comes up. Eddie Offord is the guy who produced the really essential first four or five yes records. And we're like, Eddie Offord's coming in. Holy, you know, so Eddie Offord comes in. He's a very quiet guy and he's kind of, you know, all right, let's take this from the top and we'll run through. And we'd, we'd kind of have, so you a, actually began working with him. We did. Yeah, we you did. did. Okay. A little bit. It wasn't and, just a meeting. He was actually in the studio. Well, he was you. kind of listening and kind of, you know, putting his two cents in on stuff and it got very, we had some Chris Farley moments there where it was like, oh, hold, hold on. Uh, so, so what did you like do on that record? You know, we were remember the him. time. Yeah. Yeah. Like, how did you get Chris Squire's bass? You know, it turned into a Q and a with Eddie offered, you know, from those recordings. But, um, it turned out that, uh, uh, he did not work out and, uh, Brendan came in, and we remember it's kind, it's kind of like, uh, you know, when you hire someone, you're, you're interviewing them to kind of see if they can kind of translate what you want sonically. You know what I mean? It's, it's, you're kind of looking ahead in the future, hoping it's going to sound a certain way, and hoping this person can do that. You know, so 
I think it was just the, the pretty immediate how we felt about Brendan. It was just like, all right, we're, we're all on the same page and let's go. Yeah. We didn't really talk about much. We just started doing it. All right. On that note, we've got to go to a break, but we got so much more to discuss. Again, the 25th anniversary of Stone Temple Pilots debut album, Core, is out everywhere September 29th in various configurations from vinyl to CD to digital to however you want music these days. So check that out. And uh, we got some audience questions because we have a great audience with us here in Los Angeles that want to talk to the guys and fire away. So we'll take some of those. And I got plenty more to ask, time permitting, as we continue to celebrate the anniversary of this great record with Eric Kretz and Dean and Robert DeLeo. This This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Hey, let me tell you guys about Bluehost. It's the top-rated website provider. They power over 2 million websites. Whether you're a blogger, small business owner, Bluehost has everything you need to build the website you've always wanted. Bluehost, they are the best tool to build, host, and manage your personal or small business website. Bluehost gives you the freedom to design your website your way without being limited by templates. Bluehost makes hosting your website stress-free so you can get back to what matters most. Simple enough for beginners and powerful enough for even the most advanced users. Ultimate flexibility and control. Fully customizable templates and third-party app support. True reliability. We're talking 99.9% uptime guarantee and automated updates. And maximum security, too. That's important, including malware, monitoring and protection, and automatic secure WordPress installs. 24-7 tech support, online resources, and expert services to help you succeed and save time. Bluehost, they are the top recommended WordPress host on WordPress.org since 2005. And listen to this, Eddie Trunk listeners, you guys save 50. That's 5-0, 50% half off. When you sign up at bluehost.com slash Eddie Trunk. Once again, bluehost.com slash Eddie Trunk. The Eddie Trunk Podcast. True car, you know the deal by now, my friends. When you are looking to buy a car, what do you want? You want to make sure you're getting real pricing on actual inventory. Well, a lot of times that's just not the case. People configure cars online only to find out they're not available. With True Car, you get real pricing on actual inventory. Yep, that's right. It's not pricing offered by True Car, but pricing from an actual dealer and not just any dealer but a true car certified dealer. It's a carefully curated network of dealers committed to transparency and offering you a competitive market price. Using true car, you can easily find the car you want. Next, true car will show you what other people in your area paid for the same car you're looking for. And now you know what a fair price is. So you can feel confident over three million cars have been sold to true car users by true car certified dealers network and there's over 13,000 true car certified dealers nationwide you work directly with a true car certified dealer contact true car users they are more likely to enjoy a faster buying process when they connect with true car certified dealers and true car users save an average of over three thousand bucks off msrp so when you're ready to buy visit true car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience some features they're not available in all states 
This, this is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. We're back now more with Robert, Dean, and Eric on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast celebrating the 25th anniversary with Stone Temple Pilots of their debut album, Core. Moving the story forward, the experience in the studio, um, making the record once Brandon came into it, Eric will pick this up with you, was was positive? Everybody felt good about what was happening in the studio? Yeah, it was very positive. And working with Brandon, one of the best things on top of his knowledge of, of, of recording was that he just works very quickly. So we didn't really overthink things and try different takes a million different ways. It was pretty much two or three takes per song. Sounds great. Next one. Yeah, you know? Songs, we only used like 14 tracks, man. You know, we were recording on the tape, of course. And right. you know, some songs are only like 14 or 15 tracks. Was there much recorded for the first record that didn't make it on, or did you, did you actually just record? We just, we just squeezed it all in there, everything we had. And then Brendan was reminding us yesterday how we had to come up with a few stuff to make the, uh, the album a little more complete. Because we probably only had 10 songs or so, and then kind of kept writing. It's a, it's a long record, though. I think it's almost... Almost 60, I think. Yeah, it's almost yeah. an hour long. Yeah, because the last track's about eight and a half, yeah. I think, right? So it ends yeah. with sort of an epic. Um, okay, so the record's made. You get ready for this thing to, to, to be released. Sex-type thing is the first thing anybody hears from Stone Temple Pilots. Talk about that decision. Was there any discussion as to what should be the first foot forward, or was that the no-brainer to launch the band with from the get-go? I think that was the best representation. There's so much to think about when it's your first record and it's your first single and you're on a major label and nobody wants to mess it up. You know what I mean? I mean, Plush was an obvious song that was, we thought was going to be a big song, but we intentionally buried that back to like seven or eight or nine back there. So we wanted to give the, ch- you know, the record a chance to be listened to without just, oh, here's the single and let's move on. So sex type thing, I think to all of us was kind of made the most sonic sense. And what were the origins of that song in particular? Like, where did that one come from, Dean? You know, it was interesting. I, I'm, I'm going to answer your question, but these are the days of MTV and you had a video and it was a really exciting time, as you all know. And we, we had our video debut of sex type thing and it was to come on at midnight and we're on, I know we were on the phone with one another and you know, in the bottom left-hand corner of videos, it showed the band, the label, like name of the song, the name of the song. So our, our, we're on the phone. We're like, Oh, here it is. There was no caption. I'm like, I'm like, we're done. We're over. Our career is over, man. Yeah, no one's so, gonna know who it so was. So there's no ID when no they show ID. It was and like, it looked week, like a commercial. The same thing happens again, <laughs> even though our management said we'll take care of it. Just Label sort of said, guess we'll who this new band is. Oh, yeah, it's like, I'm so upset. I was like, we're over. We're done, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly it worked out, and radio embraced it pretty much right out of the gate. I mean, that was the thing. I mean, it when when it hit. And having worked in rock radio as as I do now at, at that time, I remember when that hit and that came out, it was like immediate. There was like a lot of immediate excitement about the band. Were you guys ready for that? Did you see that coming? Because it was no. right out of the box. It just connected. We it left seemed. on the road right at that time. So yeah. we were kind of in our own little bubble traveling across the country. Was that a he- uh, your own tour or were you opening for someone? Yeah, just, we're, we're on a club tour. 
Okay. And we had a Winnebago that we all were traveling in and a small rider truck for all the gear. There were six of us total. Yeah. Uh, Hootsie, our sound man being one of them. And so all we could do was call home and kind of find out, oh, man, you're, you're getting played on the radio a bit. It's like, oh, you're getting played on the radio a lot. So we, we did a lot of radio interviews. So you'd hear it, of course, then when you're in the station, you know, when they're promoting it. But we weren't really able to go to work in the morning, you know, have, have regular nine to five hours and hear how it's kind of getting picked yeah, I'd, up. I'd venture out to say that the radios and those two vehicles that Eric just mentioned did not work. <laughs> you remember driving through Texas and it would just spin and spin and spin on search for I remember using a payphone. Right. We're having to use a payphone. Yeah, we had a pager and then we'd use the payphone. Pager, you know, I, I always wanted to have a pager and I could never afford one, so I used to wear my garage door opener. Uh. <laughs> just to make it look like you had yeah, one? Yeah. <laughs> so so uh were you prepared? I mean, because that's 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 a lot on on some young guys that are, are a lot's happening pretty quick here. Signed much. to Atlantic, and you're out on the road, and you're in your Winno, Winnebago, and Dean's looking at his fake pager and, <laughs> and and everything, and then all of a sudden, you know, this you, your first song's blowing up, and you're on MTV, even though it's not Chiron, but eventually it was. Yeah. I mean, did you were you prepared for it? How did everybody no, handle it? No, we had we had a we had an A and R guy named Tom Carolyn at the time, and Tom was. Very comical with his facial expressions, and he always make this Rodney Dangerfield type, uh, big eyed kind of. And and he and he and he would he was he, he'd always go fasten your seatbelt, you know. And 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 I always thought, oh, that's funny, you know. And then I thought, he's for real. Like you really have to fasten your seatbelt here. It was it was yeah. You know, with newness there comes excitement, man. And everything was so new, but you know. In a way, we were kind of, I wouldn't say prepared, but it was, you know, everything we kind of thought it would be. Because, you know, this has been dreams of ours since we were kids, you know. You know, what were you thinking when you were playing at 15, 16? Like, I want to do this. I want to make records. You know, it was none of the other jive. You know, there's there's one term that I just absolutely can't stand. And it's the term rock star. Because I've seen people abuse it. And I think it's a shitty term. I don't like it. And... You know, I just wanted to make records, man. I just wanted to make records and tour and play and be a song and dance man, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and we were touring six nights a week across the country. And that, that first tour was, what, six, seven weeks long? Two months yeah. around there? Yeah. So it, it, I think it was foreign to us as far as the, the success it was having on radio. All we knew was, like, the shows were going from 50 to 100 people to 200 and to 300. And then we get down to Texas, and there's 700 people. So the crowds are getting more energetic. And, of course, they're buying the record, and they knew the songs. And that was our only real gauge to figure out what was happening. Those, yeah, well, those... if, Dean's, if Dean actually had a real pager, he probably would have gotten <laughs> no, better information. I could have I mean, been... He probably would have found out what was really happening. You know, what's interesting is those stage... But no one knew. <laughs> those stage clothes stand up by themselves after a while. They're so... Uh... Gross. A little crusty at that point. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. All right. So um, we want to take some questions from the audience because, of course, the story goes from there. And, and there's so much more that, that I can and dig into uh, about this period. But I want to make sure we include the audience before we run out of time and then maybe have some time on the back end and a few more things from me. So let's get into the audience questions because we have a great audience here at the Gibson Showroom in Beverly Hills here in Los Angeles. And our first uh, question is going to come from James Chacon. I hope I'm saying James. James? James. 
James, fire away at the guys in SDP. How you doing, fellas? Uh, my question is, uh, what song reminds you of why you love what you do? One of their own songs or their, an, another song? One of their songs. Is there a definitive Stone Temple Pilots song in your eyes from this record? I'll, I'll, I'll step up. I'll answer. There's, there's a song that um, Robert wrote that appears on the number four record that I just love the character that Scott took on. And that's a song called I Got You. I've always been a fan of, of that, you know, 50s and 60s country. And like I said, the character that Scott took on for that song was just so incredible. And it really shows the depth of his talent that he was able to sing like that. And I just always had this affinity to do a solo on a six string bass. So I got to do that on there, too. Robert, anything you want to you know, throw in? I, th- I think it's just the catalog in general. You know, you kind of look back and they're all your little children, you know, and, and making music. You know, I kind of look at it like, you know, taking a Polaroid and you don't look at those pictures a lot as you get older, but you kind of sometimes hear something on the radio and it just, it's got this memory or associates you with something in your life. It's, it's amazing the what music in general can do, you know, the power of it. Yeah. When I was thinking about it, I, I think it'd probably be creep only because for playing that song live year after year, the way Scott, we, we did it in many different forms sometimes a little bit of electric guitar, sometimes just acoustic alone. But Scott would always really go out there with the audience and sing and have audience participation. And it was always truly beautiful to, to know, like, oh, that's right. It's not just about the big rock sensation. It's, it's how beautiful just a simple one guitar and a voice can be on a song. And it was uh, always very special every night. Uh, let's find Zach Foster in the audience. Hey, Zach. Uh, what did you love most about working with Scott on core? If there was one thing. I'll start with this one. So when we did the song Dead and Bloated, we knew that was a pretty powerful song. So I'm like, you know, recording, you know, emphasizing the drums first on the, on the track for the foundation. I'm like, Scott, you got to sing about six feet in front of me. And just the way that he was holding the mic and just staring at me. And we're like, it's basically like when you watch football players, when they get ready for a match, how they're just banging helmets and they're just, you know, cheering each other on that was the kind of look we're giving each other and when i listened to that track that's what i think about was just staring at him just going yes this song is hitting hard and uh and uh, yeah it's still uh, it's still there it's you put it on and it just just floors me on that kind of energy that we try to purvey in the on the recording dean any uh scott uh, memories so many memories from man. the from, from this period at least yeah i mean we lived together we were living together at the time it goes back to what Robert said about, you know, the, a, a song can just take you back to this moment in time, you know. And Creep sticks out to me. You know, we were all in the room that night and listening to playback to Creep for the first time at like 1130, you know, in Rumbo. And just so many memories, man. And, 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 and I think the, the, the most vivid are just how electric he was, man. How focused and, and vibrant and just incredible he was. And I'll tell you, some of the great memories... You know, he always liked going in and do his, his vocals alone. He'd go in after dinner. I'm going to quote Bernie Taupin. He'd be about as oiled as a diesel train. And so they would go in at about 8 o'clock at night, and it was just Brendan and Scott, and they would come out and be like, all right, come on in. About 10 o'clock, two hours, they would have a vocal track done. I mean, that's how proficient the guy was. And we'd go in at 10 o'clock. And as a songwriter, as we know, to have Scott Weiland sing on your song was pretty fulfilling, man. It was you know, night after night, it was like far out, man. That's great. Robert, anything you want to add? Well, he, he had such a, 
great energy. And I, I think it's, it, I think it's the time that was leading up to making core, you know, it was when he was working across the street. I worked at a guitar shop on sunset here and he was, he was driving models to their, their shoots. That's what Scott was doing at the time. Rough gig. So yeah, rough gig. So he just had this, just, he was always so excited about whatever it was, but that was the thing. It was one thing he was excited about. And you can, you can only imagine how it felt for, for us to finally get to that point where we're going to sign a record deal. We're going to sign a record deal and not have to work on here. We're going to do this. And that energy that he had, he put that all into those songs, all into those songs. And that's, that's what I miss. Can I ask you guys one follow-up on this? Because we're all um, talking about, and, and of course, you know, uh, celebrating Scott's contributions to this record, which are massive, of course, and talking about this time. But we all know, sadly, Scott's no longer with us, and he had his issues that would develop and, and the demons that would come into play. But at this period, when you're making this record and you're touring and Core is released, any... Any red flags at this point, or was everybody was the vibe great amongst everybody, and was everybody healthy and doing well, or were things starting to sort of creep in even at this early period? Oh, things were great. Things All were good. great. He was he was in a great place. He was in a really great place. Like as Robert said, he was just so full of life and just that joie de vie and just focused and ecstatic. You know, ecstatic. Because as I said, I mean, nobody can be prepared for this sort of success. And it affects people different ways. Well, yeah. lyrically, it's just, it's all right there. Just, you know, can you listen to what he was singing about lyrically? There was, you know, questioning, where's this going to go? Well, What's going to happen? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, there's a saying that says, you know, everyone you meet in life has a battle going on inside that you know nothing about. You know, I think we all have that, you know. There's a battle in all of us that we're fighting that no one else knows anything about. And it just happens that when you're a, a singer and you're a lyricist, you put that out for people to, to see. You know, you, you, you can see that. And there, you know, you could tell uh, there were issues inside uh, that he was expressing, you know. But it's, 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 it's how we all handle it, isn't it? Let's uh, give people a little bit of a rundown of, of the way you can get core here because. Uh, for the anniversary edition, there's the Super Deluxe 4 CD with two hours of live stuff and demos. The MTV Unplugged is included on this, which was a great performance. How did you guys feel about that at the time that you did it? Nervous as hell. Yeah. Nervous as hell. I, I, just, I just heard that. You know, putting this in together was really emotional, man. It was, like I said, you know, there was stuff I hadn't heard in... Was it 25 years, Lisa? Yeah, 25, 25, 25 years. That's a so, quarter of a century, uh, Yeah. Dude. <laughs> so hearing this stuff was, I was like, you know, it's not half bad, man. <laughs> We're pretty good. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was really cool to hear it on a lot of different levels, you know. Um, and it just, it just seemed to take on an entire different meaning with Scott being gone and stuff, you know. Yeah. You know, the other thing is this is, as part of the reissue, like everything now, coming back out on vinyl again, being old school guys, you know, uh, seeing this sort of vinyl resurgence. But I'm just trying to think, 92, when the record was originally released, was it ever originally released on vinyl? Because I would think it would be done by then. Vinyl was pretty cassette. much done by then, right? Yeah, cassette and then CD. 
cassette and CD was the so is this the first time the album is properly issued on vinyl? Uh, we did purple on vinyl. We, but for we, core, I'm talking. No, about. it's just first first. There was time. probably some imports that had it, right? But I don't remember it being as a an American release. There's a two CD version as well, and uh, a, you know a few different configurations here. Just uh, if you just want the good old CD remastered, you can get that also. So you've got there's four demos on here from the Mighty Joe Young period, right? 87 to 90. Is that the earliest material included in the in the box set? It is. Yeah. So you got some of that action, and then a live at Reading concert that's on here. Now, was that that was on the tour for the first record that you went to the UK? It was. That yeah, was like the thirteen we month out of the fourteen months we were on the road. The first tour, I think. Yeah. What, what was it? Was it the first time you went to England for the three of you guys? Had you been over there before? That was the first time. The and first and time. how did the British take to Stone Temple Pilots? Was there an immediate? Connection like there was in America? That was the first time I heard the word brilliant used so much. Brilliant. Brilliant? Really? Brilliant. It's better than if they would have said it was shite. Yes. <laughs> piss, piss off. Yeah. So, so, you, so, it was a good, so you had a good connection outside of America as well, pretty initially. It was good. It was good. When you're looking back at something, you want to see if it's going to sound good at least. And a lot of that stuff was not quite up to par. We had to do some work on it to make it sound... Uh, you know, presentable. A few more questions from the audience here. We're looking for Jamie Farber. Jamie, where are you? There's Jamie on the Hi, end. Hi, Jamie. Hi, guys. Um, uh-huh. Did you guys know that um, Plush would be a big hit when you recorded it? I think there's um, a difference between um, how successful it's going to be and how well it's going to do compared to how good you think it is. We knew it was good. We didn't know how you know successful it was going to be. But wow, did things change? We were actually on the road with Megadeth at the time, opening for them, and it was rough. It was really hard. We were we were playing as hard and fast and heavy as we could <laughs> to arenas. Robert to arenas. It wasn't happening, Robert. Oh, oh it was awful. <laughs> it, you know, we were playing as hard and heavy as we could, and and. <laughs> Robert yeah. is now holding up two middle fingers for the radio and audience. It was, it, was, that, it was that from 14-year-old kid. It was little pimple-faced boys just giving us the finger of the whole show. And I'll, I'm going to tell you guys something about Mr. Mustaine. Yeah. Mustaine was so cool. Do you guys remember yeah, that he yeah. walked out? He walked out on stage one night, and the place just goes crazy, right? And he walks out, and he goes, listen, you fuckers. These are my friends, and I handpicked them to be here. You better be cool. And he walked over like, "Yeah, oh, wow. Okay, cool. And yeah. he did that a couple times. He had to because we were just like, you could see our, our spirits were going down the tubes because it was night yeah. after night, just little pimple-faced boys yeah. with Iron Maiden shirts giving you, us the finger. You, you, know? could, you could almost hear them out there going, this is so not cool. This is not cool. This is so not cool. It's bad. But then Plush comes out, and we noticed, wow, the arenas are full. When Plush hit, you were still out with Megadeth? Yeah. Yes, we So were. Plush was the thing that turned the Megadeth fans around? Or just no. the fact that the band had gotten so no, we, everywhere. we actually accumulated our own fans. <laughs> yeah, it was um, because... That's kind of the idea, right? I think, I think Plush came out and they, they went like this. <laughs> Gave us the middle toes, too. No, it was, it was a drastic change, man. Drastic. Because sex type thing had run its course. So there was a, a fair amount of people jumping on board for that. And then Plush came along... And we were at, we'd walk out on stage on this Megadeth tour and be like, it's full. Wow, people are here to see us. Going around the horn here, starting with you, Eric, what, what song 
most surprised you of the singles from the record that it that became popular? And then there's there is there a song on the record that didn't wasn't a single that you thought should have been? Plush was probably the one we, we knew it was a good song and, and the label had interest in it early on. But the fact that it got played so much towards making people vomit because it was on the radio every hour. I mean, my when I talk when I call home, it's like God, fucking sick of hearing you on the radio all every hour you're on, and no matter what channel they they switch it to, where Plush was still on again. So it's one of those songs that we knew it was good, and you know we're very proud of so it. But it got on the Reading show, we didn't even play Plush at Reading. Yeah, some of the some of the crowds we just we didn't we just even play. Kinda, we were like we thought it was just being so overextended everywhere. We we didn't even play. I don't think Plush is on the Reading show. Because we didn't no, play I don't it. Think I remember so. it was concerned ever like let's not even play it. But what, hey, what what was let me just say something real quick. What was interesting is um, you know, back when we got signed, some of the old school people from the record companies were still there. Doug Morris mm-hmm. was was around since the fifties. And Doug, you know, once once the record started gaining momentum, you know, they would come he would come by the studio and 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 you know it was that it was that, you know. New York guy going, he'd sit down with us, with us and go, so what do you think about the next single? And we'd be like, I don't know. What do you think, Doug? He's like, his big line, I want to hear some magic. <laughs> I just, I want to hear some magic. And that's what he would say. So that exactly. was, you know, we kind of get a chuckle out of that because we were just making records. We, just ha- we were just having fun. We yeah. didn't know, you know, what... You guys do that, put out the singles, you know, we just wanted to make an album. They were amazing to be in business with, man. Yeah. yeah. They were absolutely amazing. They, the only time those guys came around was they knew how hard we were working and they knew what kind of money we were living on at the time. I think it was about 200 bucks a week, you know, and um, they would come by and take us out to a nice meal, man. And they knew with, with Brendan at the helm, you know, producing the record and what the four of us were doing, they, they gave us free reign, man, through our whole career. Yeah, creative... Dean, be honest. I will Plush be honest. is blowing up. Albums starting to sell a couple million copies. Things that you're on MTV. You ever blow a call into the old white caps and say, hey, guys, <laughs> remember me? Ten yep. penny nails? Yeah, ten penny. <laughs> no, I've, I've, I, I, the, the, the people that I worked with at the time, I hired most of them. And, of course, we were all rejects, you know. So I hired most of them, and I, I, I stay in touch with some of them to this day. So it was really fun. Actually, one, one cat, this friend of mine, Eddie Kellogg, he, he knew what I was going through to drive up to gig in, in Hollywood and have to be back. I'd, I'd pull into San Diego at 5 a.m. and have to have the store open at 6, you know, after gigging all night. And, and uh, Eddie would make, the, make the, the trek with me. You know, the singer in Boston came from Home Depot. The band Boston. So you could have almost done both, you know. Right, close. <laughs> close. Brad, Brad, right? Yeah. They, I mean, they, another... No, Brad was the original singer, but the guy who they, they oh, use now, now oh, the sorry. last 15 okay. years. Um, we have to wrap up, but the, but the audience would kill me if I didn't at least ask you this. Can you tell everybody listening anything about any future plans for the three of you or for Stone Temple Pilots? I know you know you you put out there that you were looking for people. You did an online audition thing for for singers. Where does are you still listening to stuff or where does that all stand? We've been very busy. We will not let you down. So So is it conceivable that maybe sometime soon, if the winds blow the right way, I'll be back here in L.A. and maybe we'll be talking about some future stuff. Is that possible? Yes. Good. 
Good. All right. Well, that's good news. Well, thanks to Robert DeLeo, Dean DeLeo, and Eric Kretz of Stone Temple Pilots. Always good to talk to those guys. Look forward to what they have coming next. They've got some great uh, new things cooking, trust me, I can tell you. And we look forward to that new music and everything else they have going. And the 25th anniversary of CORE is out now in several configurations on Rhino Records. Such a great record, such a great band. Check it out when you get a chance. Remember, all the interviews you hear on the Eddie Trunk Podcast are courtesy of my daily radio show and originate there on volume Sirius XM 106. Join me live Monday through Friday from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time and catch the replay if you missed that every night 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern on demand as well on the Sirius XM app and some interviews appear here uh, once a week on the Eddie Trunk podcast which is new every Thursday podcast1.com and iTunes and is produced by Katie Irizarry and don't forget I've got an Amazon store go there Amazon.com slash shop slash Eddie Trunk. Stuff handpicked by yours truly to check out and uh, go from there the rest of the way around Amazon and uh, have a look. But always start at Amazon.com slash shop slash Eddie Trunk. See you next Thursday, everybody, for another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. And don't forget to follow on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Eddie Trunk, and EddieTrunk.com is the official website. Have a good week. from every field come on and they're giving their expert opinion on everything from social media to skin to hormone health. I think you guys are going to love it. So grab a mimosa and come hang out with us every Tuesday on podcast1.com, the podcast one app and Apple podcasts. Myrtle beach is the beach 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music field trip to America's jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com.